Good morning. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Immigrant success stories are American success stories. And these stories often focus on first generation assimilation, but what of the second generation? Children of immigrants often describe feeling pressure to fulfill their parents' dreams and displaying an embodied gratitude for the sacrifices their parents made. Success is most often framed through economic and educational achievement, and of course, the heteronormative lens of career, family, children. So there's a limited vision of success growing up in an immigrant family. So what happens when who you are and what you desire conflicts with what your immigrant parents want for you? That is the question at the center of Brown and Gay in LA, The Lives of Immigrant Sons, Dr. Anthony Christian Ocampo's latest book. Dr. Ocampo is a professor of sociology at California State Polytechnic University, Pomona. He is an academic director of the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity and the co-host of the podcast, Professoring. Dr. Ocampo has received fellowships from the Ford Foundation, Jack Jones Literary Arts, Tin House, and the Voices of Our Nation's Arts Foundation. His writing has appeared in GQ, Catapult, BuzzFeed, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, among others. Dr. Ocampo was recently featured in the Netflix documentary, White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Amber Crombie and Fitch, as he was one of the employees involved in suing the company for racial discriminatory hiring practice. He is also the author of The Latinos of Asia, How Filipino Americans Break the Rules of Race, and of course, most recently, Brown and Gay in LA, The Lives of Immigrant Sons, the book that we'll be discussing today. Good morning, Dr. Ocampo. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, good morning. I'm so happy to be hearing this with you. Yes. So I, I told you before we started recording, but I have to say on record, I absolutely love the book. Um, I was already a big fan of your writing with the, Latino, the Latinos of Asia. Um, I just loved how clear the writing was, um, how you really drew us into those stories. And here again in Brown and Gay in LA, it's the same thing. I mean, I just absolutely fell in love with the writing. And let me just go ahead and say too, I knew I was going to love the book already because I loved your first book. But in the preface of Brown and Gay in LA, in like the first few lines, um, you invoke your zodiac sign. And <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, I love this. <laughs> so I just have to throw that out there. I was like, oh, yeah. Yes. Come on, Virgo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how can you not, right? There's like Virgo with Beyonce and Britney and Jennifer Hudson. There's no shortage of amazing Virgos with whom I could associate myself. So why not put that in there? Plus, it's like, I mean, I know not a lot of people are into the Zodiac, but, you know, queer folks, it's like every other breath. We talk about the the signs, but yeah, it's just it's just a fun way to talk about personality traits and behold mine kind of match up with the Virgo thing so <laughs> thanks yes. for clocking that <laughs> of course I was like oh my goodness I even wrote a little note in the margins I was like OMG I love how he brings in his zodiac sign to really explain um how you're reacting in this moment to this vignette that you share yeah but before we go to that what is your sign I'm an Aquarius Okay, tell me what this, give me the, the lowdown on the Aquarius. <laughs> um, we're very brainy and loners. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> I don't know why this came to my mind. I was like, and we like to hold a grudge, probably because people are always telling me that I hold grudges. <laughs> oh my, no, no, no. I'm not mad at that because my partner is an Aries. I mean, oh. He is a, the, 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 he has a PhD in holding grudges. So <laughs> I, I know what that's like. <laughs> Yes, uh, I love it. Ooh, Aries. Mm. I don't know about the Aries <laughs> and Virgo. Look, I have to look more into that. Aries and Aquarius is, uh, it can be volatile. <laughs> oh, wow. I bet, that fire I bet. and air, right? So it can, big flames. <laughs> 
yeah but to your point i mean i i, I jokingly open with the virgo thing because i'm trying to like contrast the dynamics uh i'm sorry the personality traits of myself and my partner and um yeah so just for those that haven't picked up the book yet i open with this vignette or the story about how the day after donald trump was elected in 2016 my partner who was like the most chill dude ever um tells me like hey we need to have a contingency plan for if something happens to us and I'm the one that's like the overthinker, the warrior, and I, I, I'm kind of surprised that he even like is thinking about something might happen to us because yeah, he's just much more relaxed and and low key. But yeah, he he actually like brought up a conversation about like if there, if something violent happens to us because in this like post post sixteen the twenty sixteen world. You just had so many examples of, of violence happening to um, minoritized populations left and right, most notably the, the pulse shooting in Orlando in 2016. So it was, a, it was a very precarious time. Not that any time in American history isn't precarious, but uh, for that year, it just, it, it really pulled the rug out from under us. And so like, I thought what more necessary time is there to really write the story of queer folks of color particularly queer children of immigrants at a time when I when we both anticipated that these populations that were going to be attacked left and right mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and and we have seen that right and we continue to see that and you know to, since you have started our conversation you know with this vignette right that you start the book with as well you know I was really moved in thinking about how nightclubs, especially for the respondents in your book, really operated as a safe space and a space to be seen in ways that they maybe didn't experience in their families. And very early, of course, in the book, you talk about um, how being gay was inherently incongruent with the hopes of immigrant parents. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. You know, what were the hopes of immigrant or what are the hopes of immigrant parents and how was being gay being framed um, by your respondents' parents? Sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, with that opening story, with the experience of, you know, living under the Trump presidency, with the experience of being a the color and being gay or even as a, as a kid being questioning um it's a lot of stress right it's a it's a lot of uh, these moments where you feel like you can't relax because you feel like someone's going to come at you at any point in time uh, when it comes to um being a child of immigrants i think one of the common trends that i've noticed among um, children of immigrants that i know regardless of what their their family's background is is that uh, from a very young age, they're aware that their parents came here, they sacrificed a lot to be here, uh, they may have um, gone through ups and downs to try to make a life for them, sacrifice leaving, you know, they left their families back home, they left everything they knew, they moved to a new country where they might not even speak the language. And so all of that is in the spirit of trying to create a better life for their kids. Uh, I feel like even as a, as, a, as a son of immigrants myself, my parents are from the Philippines, that was something that was very much instilled in me from a very young age. Like we came here so that you can have a better education, a better life. We, we could all have a better life um, if we come to the United States, the land of milk and honey, as a lot of Filipinos like to say. And uh, with that, I think that the dreams that immigrant parents share, um, this happened, this was shared by the people that I spoke to. This was something that I could relate to myself. We're very, very clear about what counts as an American success story. Mm -hmm. um, I remember growing up that both my mom and dad would say things like, oh, we just hope you marry a nice girl <laughs> and um and we hope that she's nice to us and treats us well and doesn't put us in a home once you get married uh we, we're excited that you have for you to have grandchildren etc and of course at some point in my life maybe in like my young adult years I was thinking, oh, maybe their plan for me is not actually going to come true because uh, let's just say I had no intention or desire to partner with 
woman. <laughs> and this was the early 2000s. And so the idea that I, I could partner, like actually have a partner that was a man was was pretty much a, a far and distant dream. Uh, and I think like, when I think about the stories that I heard from other young men, it was, that was something that I heard a lot was that um, they thought that being gay would somehow ruin their parents immigrant dreams in the least bit being gay or being known to be gay might ruin their reputation <laughs> among their extended family their their relatives back in mexico or the philippines uh it might it might also tarnish their reputation within the ethnic community those were the worries that these young men were having from very early on i'm thinking like elementary school they, they were worried about this stuff Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's just take a moment. Um, could you tell us about the folks that you talked to? Who were the, the men that you were talking to as far as um, race or ethnicity in age? Oh, of course. Yes. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. So for this book, as I'm a sociologist and part of the sociology thing is that you you can, you can interviews not just with one person, but a whole lot of people. Um, to try to see patterns in the experiences of the group that you're studying. So in this case, it was children of immigrants uh, who are uh, Filipino and Mexican-American, as well as other Latino ethnicities. And, you know, I get the question a lot. Why did you just focus on young men? Why didn't you interview um, women or non-binary folks or trans folks? And uh, the reality is when I started the research for this book, I did. I actually interviewed men and I also interviewing daughters of immigrants, I interviewed trans folks as well. And what I started to realize real quick is that a identity as a cisgender male really, really shaped the type of conversations we were having. And so I thought, one, just the reality is the type of conversations that we're having with other men is just, there's, there's a certain level of comfort that I think they had with me that I don't think um, necessarily happened right away with with uh, women or trans folks. And so I, I don't think that that's really a poor reflection of me. I just think it's that, you know, you just can vibe with people of your same background in a way that others can't. The other thing too, is I thought like, I'm gonna write a book. I wanna, I feel some kind of way about writing a book and then people would refer to me as like some authority on like queer women or, or trans folks. And I thought on a political level, like I'm not trying to do that. So, so yeah. Long-winded answer to your question is that I interviewed about 60 folks, um, sons of immigrants who were young adults between the ages of 18 and 35. So these were young men that grew up in the 80s and 90s. And uh, uh, yeah, all of them were either born in the United States or they came to the U.S. at a very, very young age. So their entire like childhood occurred here in the U.S. Um, and yeah, it was mostly Filipinos and, and Mexican-Americans. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a little bit about what your respondents um, thought about as success or the the success that they imagined their parents, you know, wanted them to have. And sometimes that their parents very specifically said to them, right, this is what we imagine for your future. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how they learned that being gay was not part of that imagined future? Oh, I mean, anyone that's born in this country knows that, like, being a gay person or a queer person let's just say you know folks aren't throwing parties you know they're not throwing parties being like oh my god my kid is gay you know it's just it's it's very much a stigmatized identity even though we have more representations of queer folks on tv and 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 movies it's still the case that in in all parts of the country even places that you would consider progressive to be gay is just it's not okay in 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 the eyes of a lot of people Mm -hmm. and and let's just say that very early on, these young men learned real quick that anything that was gay or even considered to be associated with being gay, like acting effeminate, um, there's nothing inherently gay about a young man wanting to like play with dolls or, or watch My Little Pony, but that gets pegged as as gay by virtue of the way we like associate gender and sexuality. Anyway, how did they learn? They learned the hard way. They learned that when they did certain things, they were very um, violently or verbally punished for it. So uh, there's all sorts of stories of young men that played with dolls and then they were yelled at by their their moms or dads. 
they would be watching something on television and like the queer storyline would pop up and then um, they would like yell at them or tell them to change the channel real quick. If they um, were too emotional, that was seen as acting like a girl, which is, you know, that's considered kind of quote unquote gay behavior. So there was a, just moments from very, very early on in childhood in the context of the home where these young men um, got trouble for not following the rules of masculinity. And that was that was very challenging because you would think that the home, the family is the place you're supposed to feel most safe. And for a lot of these young men, home actually felt very unsafe because of the way that they were constantly berated for not acting like quote unquote real boys. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, just the way that you describe some of the reactions um, of family members and some of the stories in these young men's lives, you know, I found myself, I was very heartbroken for some of these men, you know, in their childhood, right? Because as you said, the home we think about as the place that we can be vulnerable or that we can receive support. And for many of the respondents, it was not. Um, in some very explicit and, and violent ways, as you mentioned. Um, but one thing that you do talk about is how your respondents um, use different strategies to try to protect themselves, but also to uh, be successful and to really, I like how you put it, control how they were viewed. And one way was through what you talk about academic covering. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that is and how some of your respondents use that strategy. Yeah, so academic covering is this idea of investing in your academic identity, right? It, it wasn't that these young men, they were in middle school and high school were trying to necessarily like hide the fact that people might, like, or like pass a straight, for example. Um, a lot of them didn't necessarily think to themselves, oh, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get a little girlfriend and then everyone will think I'm straight, right? A few people did that, but not a lot. So, what felt more authentic and genuine for a lot of these young men was they thought, okay, I'm just going to become really good at school. And, and the reason they did that was because it was functional, right? So for just imagine in the context of a, of a public high school, some of these young men thought, okay, if I'm in the AP and honors classes, those are spaces where masculinity matters a little less, right? It's oftentimes, especially in schools with a lot of um, students of color there it was majority women in class it was also a space where like all that mattered was how smart you were not necessarily like how you know masculine you're presenting or or how how like how many girls you were hooking up with uh what mattered is that how how good you were as a student right and so they can literally just like shave off the number of hours where their their masculinity was going to be tested uh, the other thing, too, is that when it came to, to their families, some of them did the calculus in their heads and thought, OK, maybe um, if I'm like a good student and my parents find out I'm gay, then it'll be OK because like I'm good at school. Right. At least they can focus on that. Um, it'll distract them. Also, of course, like it's an easy way for them to be if they ever get pressed by, say, like nosy, gossipy aunties, right? They who are like, "Where's your girlfriend?" They can be like, "Oh, I'm focusing on school." And what was what I guess was most painful to hear was that for a lot of these young men, as early as age ten or eleven, they were already thinking about school as their exit strategy. Yeah. It was their way out of a, a very like hostile, homophobic environment that they were in in their homes or their ethnic communities or their church communities. A lot of them were like mapping out their exit plan. Maybe they weren't doing it as ex consciously or explicitly, but when they thought about it retrospectively, they were like, oh, sh oh, oh shoot. Um, I, I, I felt like back then I was doing well in school because I knew that school is a way to get into college. And if I go to college, I can move away. And I eventually when I get a degree, I could get a good job. And, you know, if worst, worst case scenario, if my family rejects me, at least I'll have financial independence one day. I have something to fall back on. So it was a very like multi-pronged multi strategy that these young men uh, were engaging in. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you talk about how this strategy was used differently by your respondents. And we're going to get into that in just a minute, but let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. 
This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Anthony Christian Ocampo, the author of Brown and Gay in LA, The Lives of Immigrant Sons. Now, before the break, you were talking about how many of your, your respondents engaged in academic covering in order to really control how they're being seen by friends and family. And you mentioned education as kind of a way to get out um, and thinking about college as maybe a long-term strategy. Uh, but your respondents weren't able to use academic covering in to the same degrees of success. So your Filipinos uh, American respondents and your Mexican American or the Latino American respondents weren't as successful in using this strategy. Um, could you tell us a little bit about why that was the case? It was different for 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 Filipino kids and and, and Latino kids, and I think a big part of that is because those two groups are treated very differently in school. There's a lot of research that shows how Filipino kids, and you know, we could categorize them under the umbrella of Asian American. Uh, a lot of Asian American kids, regardless of their academic performance, are typecast as, as smart, as hardworking, model minorities, as, as from like quote unquote good families, as one of the young men I interviewed said. And a lot of um, Mexican Americans and other Latinos in the context of school are assumed the not be invested in school, are typecast as troublemakers, are typecast as, as folks that aren't necessarily aspiring to go to, to college. And again, that could be regardless of the actual academic performance of, of that individual. There were a number of Pinos that I interviewed who said they weren't great students, but then teachers soon they were, <laughs> yeah. despite the fact that their grades were just all right. And then vice versa with, with Mexican-American young men I interviewed that said they had perfect grades, they were involved in every club you could be in, but then they still encountered teachers at their school that assumed that they were just one or the other, like, um, like literally, like, assumed them to be, like, gang members, which is horrible, right? So as you can imagine, the, the perceptions, the, the very different perceptions of, of Filipinos and, and Latinos in the context of school meant that with Filipinos, academic covering, that strategy is like right in front of them. It's very easily accessible. But with Mexican-American and other Latinos, what I found was that they had to actually go above and beyond to prove themselves as good students. And that happened in a number of ways from you know, one, one Mexican-American kid talks about how he had to distance himself from, from other Latino kids so he wouldn't be seen as being like them. All of his friends were East Asian and Vietnamese kids in school. Mm -hmm. um, and that helped teachers see him as a good student because they just saw who he was associated with. Uh, another, uh, uh, another young man talked about how he was the he was the he was a good student, a good Mexican American student in in his school, uh, but he was one of the few, right? This is the language that he used, like, "Oh, I'm one of the exceptions to the rule." And the fact that he even had to like say that is 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 it it suggests that the way that his the group to which he belongs is is perceived in a very negative way. So it was um it was it was really in, it was really inspiring to hear these stories of of young men, both Filipino and Mexican-American and Latino would be, you know, excellent students. They would strive for the best student they could be. They would get into these great college. What, what really um, pained me was that it was an uphill battle for a lot of the Latino kids. And number two, for both groups, it was this idea that like, they're only worthy if they're able to prove themselves as good students. Like, that is that's that's conditional love. That's not unconditional love, and that's not at all the 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 type of beliefs that young kids, really vulnerable young kids, should develop in in, in school, which is supposed to be a place that's supposed to feel safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really struck by that throughout the book about, as you just mentioned, um, these Filipino and Mexican American students really feeling that they had to earn, right? Earn that love, earn that validation, earn that acceptance and, and visibility here in the school context, but then also, you know, in their families as well, that if they could just be that respectable um, student, or then later in their lives, that respectable gay man, that they could earn kind of the love um, and acceptance of their families. Um, and it just really made me think about how a lot of marginalized folks, like that's how we think 
think we have to exist in the world of like, if we can just achieve enough, then we can somehow be accepted for who we are. Um, but as you mentioned later on in the book, of course, we know assimilation already there through assimilation, we know that there is no acceptance, right? Um, <laughs> the whole, the, the word and the concept itself shows that you will never be accepted. You're always trying to be something that you'll never be part of. Uh I mean, that cuts deep. I mean, yes, we're talking about my book. I mean, I'm a 41-year-old man who has a decent job and decent number of accomplishments. And yet there are days when I'm like, quote unquote, unproductive or I don't do much. And I, I beat myself up for it. And I think that it's 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 a very, uh, it, it's a Kool-Aid that takes a long time to to detox from. And so I think as as you point out, this isn't this isn't necessarily unique to just queer sons of immigrants, but any any group that feels that they're in the min the minority or their stereotype or typecast in a negative way, um, felt like they have to do extra work just to just to be in conversation, just to get their foot in the door. Sometimes I, I we're a little bit off topic, but sometimes I wonder why like what is the equivalent white burden for this? <laughs> <laughs> and I think like maybe for white people it's that they have to go above and beyond to prove that they're not racist or something <laughs> but but that's like nothing compared to what we got to go through everywhere in life but yeah it's it, it can get exhausting I think one one of the things that I, I did notice was that uh it just it just felt like these these young men had no time to rest or no time to let their um proverb like just to to let their hair down quote unquote um which is why things like what happened at Pulse are just so tragic because that's one of the few places like Latinx clubs or queer um, clubs for queer people of color is like the, one of the few spaces where people can actually just relax and be themselves, not have to be the, 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 the super student or the super son. And, you know, the idea that they could be, they could lose their lives in the space where they felt most safe. is just, it just, it's destroyed me. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, thinking about this idea of, you know, when did these young men get a chance to really relax, to just be, or to even just explore, you know, themselves, um, of course, nightlife, and you talk about, you know, different kind of pop-up parties, as well as nightclubs, um, but also through, you know, going to college as well, and, you know, college is such a, a pivotal role for a lot of, you know, a lot of folks for different reasons, but for, for the young men that you spoke to, it held um, a different type of promise um, for them as well, and for many of your respondents, they made that intentional decision to go away, to really go away mm -hmm. for college and, and to get away. Um, could you talk about some of, I guess, some of the, the, the excitement or some of the ways that college really did enable them to, to be able to, to be themselves? Yeah, I think like that is one arena where I felt like, oh, there's actually parallels between immigrant parents and their, their kids that were born here it to go to college to go away for college it's it's kind of like migration right you leave everything you know you leave people uh, all the people that you grew up with to go to a place in the hopes that you'll have a better life there's no guarantees but you hear or you think that maybe you'll have a better life it, that's very parallel to what immigrants experience minus the whole like international border thing but <laughs> uh yeah i think that that was that was really um that was really revealing when i would talk to these young men about their college experiences because a lot of them when they were in middle school high school they were like the only gay person in their school and then all of a sudden they get to this huge campus where there's a number of other gay latinos or gay filipinos that are there to, to interact with and and learn from and when i say learn from i mean learn everything like not just like learn about identity but also learn about sex, learn about health, learn about um, ways to change the world, um, all these sorts of things, learn how to come out to their families. Like, it's amazing how much these queer communities of color in college did the most heavy lifting with educating mm. these young men about how to be their people, how to, how to live their lives to the fullest in ways that I think um, th that should be the university's job. But here, here we have 
their peers being the ones that are the most pivotal people in their lives when it comes to coming of age and, and coming into their own when it comes to sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed reading the chapter about education because you did get to see uh, how some of these young men really came into their own where they did really feel like, I can be who I've always been and not have to hide or not have to feel maybe ashamed of it. And so I thought this chapter uh, brought a little joy into into the book, um, whereas some of those earlier educational experiences were quite heartbreaking. I think that was one part of the book where I found myself when I was doing these interviews and people were talking about this this period of college, I, I was a little jealous of all the things they're experiencing because, uh, and I think this is one arena where my life very much diverged from the people that I interviewed because uh, I wasn't out till after undergrad. Uh, and I went to school in the Bay Area. What a wasted opportunity. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I didn't really do much when it came to queer, my queerness, my queer explorations. And so it was really, um, one of the things I really appreciate about doing research is that you learn so much from the people that you interview. Uh, and, and not just in terms of like, oh, what are their stories? But you learn about um, the possibilities for what life can be. It helps you reimagine what life can be. I was almost to the point where I was like nostalgic about college, even though it was their experiences that were pretty amazing. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, in this book, as you know, in sociology, and my students always call this out, they're like, why is sociology so depressing? We always focus on unemployment and racism and all the terrible things. So for me, it was really clutch to be able to have the chance to talk about joyful moments that, um, because I think like, if you don't talk about those times, you're like missing a major part of mm-hmm. what it means to be a human, what it means to be a person. Um, yeah, I just feel like it's, I'm not a, trying to do the trauma porn thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, another big um, space of joy and enjoyment for the young men you talked to, of course, was nightlife. Um, and I love <laughs> this focus on nightlife because it is such a big part of a lot of people's lives, right? Going out to the bars, to the clubs. And so you spend a lot of time um, talking about uh, nightlife. And I just love this quote um, from the book where one of your respondents is talking about um Latino nightclubs in particular as a space where queer men gravitate because we love men and we love our homelands. And that's one of the places our worlds converge. And mm-hmm. I really got that sense from the, the voices of the young men um, that you included as they were reflecting on their time in nightlife and how for many of them it was a uh, a transformational experience, especially for folks as they were visibly seeing different types of gay men, um, some for the first time and really breaking the stereotypes in their own mind about what it meant to be a gay man. For sure. I, I, that quote you mentioned, it's it's from this amazing queer Latino writer, Rigoberto Gonzalez. And uh, I didn't actually get the chance to interview him. It would have been amazing too, but he wrote this, he wrote those words for an article in BuzzFeed actually after the pulse shooting happened because he wanted to just underscore how sacred these these places were. A lot of folks might think, oh, it's just a bar, it's just a nightclub. But again, like these were spaces kind of like the college student organizations where all there was a lot of learning happening, learning how to um, not just, again, not just information when it came to like health or or, or sex or relationships, but just learning about oneself, learning about what one could be when um, unconstrained by a heteronormative lens and, and, and just having the freedom to experiment with different, different ways of being. Uh, I, I just, it's interesting because I think like when it comes to assimilation, people maybe subconsciously think, oh, maybe gay people should assimilate and act more um, you know, more masculine or, or act like Will when, in Will and Grace, like act more like Will than Jack. Um, but what I what I really came away with in going to those spaces is that um, it was the f- gay men who were effeminate that I, th- I thought were, like I experienced the most liberation, like the feeling of liberation most pronounced. It was most pronounced whenever I was around men who were effeminate and, and would have no issue queening out. I just thought like, what what incredible 
freedom and courage to be able to exist in a way that is in complete contradiction of everything that you're taught to do in society. Uh, and in that sense, I think like, I think there was this moment in the book where I, I was, I was thinking about the way that like effeminate gay men in particular get disparaged and, 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 and negatively typecast mm-hmm. and called sissies and things like that. And I just thought not, not even, they're the ones who are, who are the most out, put themselves most at risk. Or, and as we know in history, it's 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 gender transgressing folks that have been the, the root of social change. When we think about um, people like Marshby Johnson and Sylvia Rivera over in the East Coast, um, there is no opportunity to assimilate for them. And so they have no choice but to be themselves. And in being themselves, it it teaches other people, regardless of their gender expression, that they too can be themselves. I, I I get not to be corny or I always get chills whenever I think about my the years I spent in those spaces long before I was in the book because I I was I would go to gay clubs and bars at the same time that I was getting my PhD and and I think that for me um, it was the perfect counterweight to all the things that happen in academia you know academia teaches you to to conform and to play by the rules and, and 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 learn a certain type of language that you have to espouse in order to be successful and going to queer spaces was the complete opposite it was a space where actually there are no rules you can be this one day and you can be that the other day and whatever who cares and it was it, it was just so much it was it was it was a place that I felt free. And I think had I not had that during my grad school years, I would have been a very different person um, today. But yeah, back to the people that I interviewed, I think like for for a lot of them, they, they, they saw these spaces as outlets. Some of them even described it as akin to church, <laughs> but they were special places. Yes. And, you know, for your respondents, I was really struck by, how, well, I guess really, I shouldn't say struck by, but really happy and excited for them that they had these spaces where they could just be and where they could explore and where they felt, you know, safe and supported because they didn't have those spaces um, in the places where we think that people normally should, whether at school or at home. And so to hear your respondents talk about, um, nightlife and the connections that they've made. Um, it was really exciting. Uh, let's take another short break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Anthony Christian Ocampo, the author of Brown and Gay in LA, The Lives of Immigrant Sons. Well, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the writing in the book. Um, I kind of mentioned it when we first started talking this morning, um, but I absolutely love the writing style. Now, you know, I think academic writing traditionally has been very boring (laughs) and very sometimes very difficult to read and it seems like a lot of insider kind of jargon. Um, But what I really appreciate about your writing um, and in your previous book as well, of course, is again, how familiar it seems. Um, This is a book that really draws you in, that wants you to be a part of the story and to understand um, the lives of immigrant sons. And so I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about the writing and some of the decisions that that you made in the the style of writing, the voice, you know, including, you know, some personal stories as well. Thank you. I love talking about craft. I feel like we have a whole episode on craft. And if you ever want me to come back just to talk about that, I feel like I will talk your ear off about craft. So it's the writing. So I think um, (laughs) I, I, I feel like sometimes um, I get credit for for pushing the boundaries when it comes to writing in the way I do. But to be honest, yes, yes, I sh- I do give myself some credit. But to be to be honest, I think that the the journey into becoming a creative nonfiction writer, which is how I I, I identify nowadays, was very much shaped by my professional trajectory. So when I was 
in grad school, I, I learned how to write an article. I wrote articles too, and I learned how um, what was considered uh, uh, an article that was impactful to the field and was making a contribution to the field, et cetera, et cetera. And I was very much going that route. I was at UCLA, and then when I graduated, I was a little bit of a fork in the road. I had the choice to either do like this UC postdoc, which would funnel you into a research university, or um, I had a tenure job offer at, at the school I'm at, Cal Poly Pomona for short. And it's a regional state university. It's more of a teaching institution. Um, in fact, your tenure is based more on your teaching than your research. And so it's, um, this was the recession, right? And so I was like, uh, I can't risk going to postdoc if I got a job. <laughs> right. Not only a, like, like a, a, a real job. <laughs> and it's in my hometown and it's 20 minutes from home. So as much as I um, was indoctrinated to to only the R the one thing, I, I, I made the decision to go to the teaching university. And I think that matters a lot because when I started teaching there, I realized that the students I had at the Cal State University system were vastly different than the ones at UCLA. So at UCLA, they were overwhelmingly 18, 21 or 22. They were the ones that were the best students in their respective high schools. And, you know, they were very much like college was very much the center of their life. Of course, that, that's not everybody, but it's very different at, at, at the Cal State system where my students were almost overwhelmingly working some 40 hours a week. Some also had caregiving responsibilities. I have a lot of students that were parents. I had a lot of students that, um, you know, had to take the bus. They didn't they live near campus. They had to take the bus to campus. I had a lot of students that were dealing with a lot of life stuff. Uh, I can't even tell you, like, everything from um, housing insecurity to to food insecurity to their parents be, being deported. Like, these are the type of stories that were common mm -hmm. at the Cal State that I would rarely or never hear at the UC. And this is all to say what that meant was that in my classes, when I would assign readings, um, I knew that my students were pressed for time. And so I, I, I noticed that students responded differently to different writing styles. So for example, when I assigned students um, Punished by Victor Rios or, or C.J. Pascal's wonderful book on masculinity in high school, the students were like, no matter how busy they were, they would read. They were into it. Um, they would engage the text. And then when I gave them a book that I, you know, would be respected in sociology, but had a different writing style, <laughs> <laughs> even though I could read it and liked it, it was really interesting to see students be like, uh, I don't want to do the reading. I just, it's, this is poor. I'm just not into it. And I'm not saying that students should read stuff that they don't like reading. It's, it's an important skill because, you know, life or whatever. But, um, <laughs> I just thought I want to write a book that's more like Victor's and CJ's. And so I I wrote that book in a way that um, was very narrative driven. I told my editor, like, you know, I'm not in an R1. So they, they were excited because they were like, oh, that means you can like write it in a way that's more for popular audiences. I, I was like, I would love that. I would love to write a book that ends up at the airport. You know, when you go to the airport, you go to the bookstore. Yes. In Hudson. Like, <laughs> that's like my dream. And, and so they really encouraged me to, to write in a way that was, um, I'll never learn this. I'll never forget this from my editor, Jenny Gabosh at Stanford University Press. She said, you got to write in a way that gets people to turn the page, mm, right? Yeah. If your writing is not such that people want to turn the page then you're dead in the water. And mm. I just really took that to heart. And I, to, to Jenny's credit, she would, I would send her stuff and she'd be like, I'm sorry, Anthony, this is boring. And <laughs> I actually like would share drafts with my undergrads and I would tell them, let me know, let me know the parts that you think are boring and the parts that you think you like. And so they really shaped me as a writer. I would not be the writer I am today had I gone to say like an R1 school. I can guarantee that. Mm -hmm. And then um, a lot of my, you know, I had a lot of academic colleagues, a lot of whom I respect that were like, uh, are you sure you want to do that you know the way you your book kind of sounds very like it, it almost sounds like it's too personal and 
they they basically were saying it's not rigorous because of the way I wrote it, which is like so cliche. But um, <laughs> but lo and behold, um, the book came out. My first came out in 2016, and it was getting read by senior citizens and high school students and and folks in my neighborhood and and I was getting invited to talk about it on like local tv and, and in the Philippines and I just thought like how cool is that yes maybe you know University of Chicago Department of Sociology hates it but who cares right <laughs> people in my neighborhood people in my home country are, are all about it and that's really all that matters like uh, I, I sometimes like like to be petty and look at my Google Scholar sites and see that my book is cited just like not a lot, maybe like a hundred something times. But you know what? My book's been talked about in the New York Times and the LA Times and NPRs thrice. So whatevs, right? So um, anyway, I'm, I'm kind of digressing. I think you kind of see I'm a very like revenge driven, petty person. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really the first to tell you that I'm very much driven by revenge. And so, um, and you know what? My book has sold like 10,000 copies. So whatever, like with like no major publicity arm. So kudos to me. But with the second book, um, a more, more real talk. Like I think when I was writing the book in the middle of the writing, the pulse shooting happened. And I just thought like, I cannot write this book in a way that is, this book has to be for, it has to be written with some sense of urgency, right? It, it can't just be a book about this group of people. It has to feel urgent. So I felt like the urgency that I felt in the aftermath of the pulse shooting really forced me to reckon with the writing style that I had. And, um, and yeah, that's, that was part of it. But going back to the original point, you know, again, because I'm a petty person and that's fine. Uh, I was... I was at a, another fork in the road where I had the this this moment where I was I had a I had this moment where I was like I could stay at my current school, but I'm being recruited for a job at a at a really great R one institution that I had always wanted to work for, mm-hmm. and I um at that moment I was like oh if I get this job at the R one I'm gonna have to sort of like pull back on the, the writing style and make it more academic, and yeah for that for that. For that inter- for that recruitment experience, um, it was horrible. I had to do. They made me do two job talks, two sets of interviews, in two different departments, and you know, I I had. I I know this is going to air. Whatever, I'm over at this. I, I had heard that like a lot of people were in support, like numerically, a lot of people were in support, but there was just like one dude that just decided nope he's not going to come here and so uh I was I mean that really screwed me up in in a in a in a really really heavy way and so like I felt like I not only felt like I was less inclined to be in academia I was like I want to close the door like screw these people I know I shouldn't base it on like one white dude but that's the way I felt and um the universe works in wonderful wonderful ways I was the same that when that really really terrible thing happened to me um after that recruitment experience um which you know we should get drinks and we could talk about it i want to give you all names and details about exactly what happened so anyone that's out there and you run into me in person just buy me a drink and i'll tell you all the dirt i'll tell you all the dirt but um yeah i felt really lucky because that was the same year that on a whim i applied for a creative writing workshop Mm. and I got in like literally within a week or so of having that heart that other academic heartbreak I got into this creative writing workshop and I got to study creative writing with Kiesley Lehman who wrote this I mean if you don't know him you're missing out it's like one of the greatest American writers right now and he's a incredible and when I worked with Kiete, I got to connect with other incredible writers um, who gave me opportunities to do more creative type of writing. I got to, um, I got into other other workshops with um, that Jack Jones Literary Arts. I got to be in a, a I could spend a week in Savannah, Georgia, with writers like Imani Perry, uh, Mary Tulusan. There's, it was just so so incredible. 
Warren uh, Jackson was there. Um, she's doing great things in the New Yorker. And I, I felt home in ways that I never felt in sociology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've been lucky ever since I got into these other creative writing classes. So I got to work with um, Shakira Diaz and, and Nadia Wusu. I know the sociologists might be like, who are these people? Well, you know what? You're missing out. So um, I, I just I just got to be with writers that could render the experiences of, of, of people of color in ways that wasn't just about their trauma. It was, it was in very full ways. It was in humorous ways. It was in, it was in, um, you know, petty ways, whatever. And I just thought, you know, if, if my job is to render the human experience accurately, particularly for groups that have been dehumanized historically and in, in, in the contemporary moment, then I am better off learning from creative writers than I am learning from sociologists. Mm-hmm. Well, that really comes through in this book. We get the full humanity. Yes, there is some tragedy, but there's a lot of joy and enjoyment and just regular everydayness in these stories. Um, So, you know, again, thank you for writing this absolutely beautiful book. I'm excited for everyone to read it. It is a book to be savored. That's really what came to mind. Um, so when you talk about, you, you know, a previous editor talking about writing so that people want to turn the page, I wanted to turn the page, but I also wanted to really sit with each page. Um, not is not a book that you just, you know, skim through really quickly or you rush through, but it is one that you actually, you know, enjoy and you're with, you know, you're with the young men in the stories. And so I absolutely love it. Thank you so much. I'm glad, again, if you ever want to have a follow-up and sequel talking about just writing, I feel like I just scratched the surface. I would love to talk to you about that again one day. Yes. But thanks for having me. This is amazing. This is Honestly, this is one of the best convos I've ever had so far about the book. And I, I feel like I have you to thank for that. Well, thank you so much. We will definitely have you on again to talk about writing. Um, thank mm-hmm. you, Anthony Brown and Gay in LA, The Lives of Immigrant Sons. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you again to Dr. Anthony Christian Ocampo. The book is Brown and Gay in LA, The Lives of Immigrant Sons. Of course, as you can imagine, there is so much more in the book that we did not get a chance to talk about this morning. So if you're interested in learning more about the book, definitely grab a coffee a coffee. No, grab a cot. Well, grab a coffee, but also grab a coffee. <laughs> of the book. As I said, it's really a book to be savored and enjoyed. Absolutely loved reading it. Uh, For today's positive note, I want to leave you with this quote that says, if I wait for someone else to validate my existence, it will mean that I'm shortchanging myself. This quote really spoke to me, especially in context of the conversation we are having today, because so much of the book is also about really writing the stories of uh, queer, brown men into into what we understand as knowledge, into what we understand as the human experience. And Anthony has done it just so beautifully. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You know, I'm here every Monday morning and you can always catch a replay of the show or get back into the archives and other great conversations in podcast format. You can find the show Let's Grab Coffee, WYXR, wherever you stream podcasts. I can't wait to have you here with me again next Monday morning. <laughs>